This is the East TraumaCast. TraumaCast. With your moderators, Levi Proctor from the University of Kentucky, Lexington. Dave Morris from the Mayo Clinic in Rochester, Minnesota. And Matt Martin from Madigan Army Medical Center. This program is brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma, Advancing Science, Fostering Relationships, and Building Careers. This is Matt Martin. I'm the chair of the online education section. I want to really thank everyone for joining us today, and I think we've got a great topic. Uh, We're going to be talking about active shooter scenarios and the Hartford Consensus Guidelines and the TECC Guidelines, in course. So uh, Andrew Bernard is going to be our moderator. Well, this is Andrew Bernard. I'm the chair of the Division of Education for the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. And on behalf of uh, myself, my co-moderator, Matt Martin, and East, I'd like to welcome everybody here today for what to me is the most exciting trauma cast yet. Uh, this is a trauma cast that will be interactive. It's not something that we've done in the past and really allows us an opportunity for dialogue among some of the greatest young minds in surgery and trauma on a topic with which we are all very familiar, and that is active shooter situations. We have a great layout of faculty, but before I introduce the faculty, I want to thank my co-moderator, and the chair of the online education section, Matt Martin, for creating this interactive TraumaCast series. And uh, I want to thank Matt for setting up the call today. As Matt said, today we're talking about active shooter situations. We've assembled five outstanding faculty today. I'm going to introduce the faculty, then I'll lay the ground rules for all the faculty and the participants on the call, and then we'll get started. So to lead off, we have Alex Eastman, the Trauma Medical Director, at Parkland Hospital and is one of the original Hartford Consensus members. Alex is a police officer with the Dallas Police Department and SWAT and comes with a great deal of experience in this area. Next, we have Dr. Eric Campion, Assistant Professor of Surgery at the University of Colorado Denver Health Medical Center. Next, we have Dr. Reed Smith, Uh, Dr. Smith is an emergency physician, operational medical director for the Arlington County, Virginia Fire Department, and associate professor in the Department of Emergency Medicine at GW. Next, we have Dr. Gene Riley, clinical assistant professor of surgery and associate director of the SICU at Reading Hospital. And lastly, we have Dr. Babak Sarani, leading off the uh, TECC team. We have Dr. Babak Sarani, trauma director, and uh, at George Washington University as well, co-medical director of critical care at the GW Hospital, and also chair of, uh, of the technology committee, uh, technology section at East. So today we're here to talk about uh, active shooter situations. This is how the format will go. So I will offer the Hartford Consensus Group an opportunity to lead off the discussion about the Hartford Consensus and how the Hartford Consensus uh, and uh, its efforts can address the active shooter problem, and then we'll open it up for the uh, Tactical Emergency Casualty Care Group to discuss how TECC can address this problem maybe from a different direction. Each group will have three minutes for their opening discussion, and then we'll have directed questions to each group, after which each group will have the opportunity uh, to take three minutes to answer the question. And after all the questions have been answered, then we'll open it up to all the participants on the call for discussion. We're going to open the debate from the Hartford Consensus side. We'll let Dr. Alex Eastman open with a three-minute review of the Hartford Consensus and how the Hartford Consensus uh, can reduce active shooter um, uh, morbidity and mortality. Dr. Eastman. Andrew, thank you very much for the introduction. I'll tell you, I really appreciate the chance to do this, and I think I I just want to commend East uh, for taking the time to uh, really address a topic that's challenging. I think one of the things that's interesting you'll see over the course of the next hour for the people that are listening is that while this is presented as a debate, you're going to see that, that the two sides of this debate agree on much more than we disagree on. And I think that's what's really important is that, that we as trauma surgeons and certainly as the emergency physicians that are on the call, we really have to come together to help guide the country through 
what is really a vexing problem, and it's really a public health problem for it that, that is incumbent upon uh, all of us to address. The Harper Consensus is an interesting uh, – uh, the, the way that it's taken off is truly fascinating. It started uh, – the actually, the American College Surgeons and the FBI came together with the idea of crafting some guidance that would help improve survival from active shooter events. Uh, the initial group was very small. It consisted of Dr. Uh, Len Jacobs representing the college, Norman McSwain uh, representing PHTLS, Mike Rotundo, the chair of the Committee on Trauma at the time, David Wade, a surgical oncologist who was the chief med- uh, medical officer of the FBI, Bill Fabry, who is the medical director for emergency programs at the FBI and an emergency physician, uh, myself representing the Major City Chiefs Association, which is the uh, professional association of the uh, chiefs of police in the 80 largest cities in the U.S., Canada, and the United Kingdom. Uh, Frank Butler, the chair of the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty Care, and John Sinclair, who was the immediate past chair of the EMS section of the International Association of Fire Chiefs. So an eclectic group of people. And the idea was to bring a group that had, together that had never really spoken before and come up with some novel ideas or at least some better way of presenting some current ideas uh, about how to improve survival from the active shooter. The group started off with a very simple um, uh, idea, which was to you know, help describe the sequence of steps that needed to be taken, that, in our opinion, to improve active shooter survival, and that was the threat acronym, and then really focus on establishing hemorrhage control as a core law enforcement skill because the law enforcement officer is the, at the time, as we were looking at this, is really the first professional responder that, that arrives on the scene of these things. So that was the first the essence of the original Hartford consensus. Shortly after the meeting, of course, uh, you know, our paradigm was again shifted because the 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 marathon bombing occurred and, and the idea that we could only focus on the active shooter really became uh one that was now active shooter and intentional mass casualty events in the United States. And from there, the idea of uh, uh, the second and third Hartford Consensus meetings, which really expanded to several other partner organizations and really m- made, I-, I hope, the the active shooter response community really start to have the discussion of moving away from our former model of responding to these, which really occurred in a three-phase response, uh, a law enforcement phase, a fire rescue EMS phase, and then a community recovery phase, you know, sort of definitive care and community recovery phase, and move into a much more seamless approach. I think the nuts and bolts of how we do that is where there might be some difference between um, the two sides in this debate. But the second and third Hartford consensus meetings really focused on uh, the integration of those communities and then lastly and most recently – the implementation of of a public access hemorrhage control program in keeping with uh, the efforts that have occurred um, across the highest levels of the federal government. So, uh, in a way, by way of full disclosure, the Hartford Consensus Group is actually a meeting at the end of this week uh, here in Dallas, Texas. The group's coming together uh, to begin to, or, or not to begin, but to continue the work uh, that was started in terms of public access hemorrhage control and, and to move some things forward. So. Uh, we'll have some hot off the press information for you uh coming up at the end of the week. And with that, um I think I'll I'll yield what scant time I have left over to Reed. Great, thanks Alex. Um just as a caveat, I am in a working firehouse, so I I turned down my my overhead announcements, but you may hear a little noise in the background if we get any calls. Um I appreciate uh, East and, and appreciate the, the ability to kind of discuss this really important topic as well. I think it's a, a great uh, a great venue and a, a great um, opportunity to discuss this. I, I do want to reiterate what Alex said. You know, Alex and I are great colleagues, and, and it was funny. We kind of talked real briefly ahead of time about is it going to be disappointing that we agree on more that we disagree on. Um, you know, the, the uh, Committee for Tactical Emergency Casualty Care, is a, it's a nonprofit uh, grassroots of people, including Dr. Eastman and Dr. Butler, and, and most of the people involved in the Hartford, this, the Hartford One, um, that our our focus has been looking at uh, lessons learned on the battlefield, so the military medical lessons learned, and translating them to make them appropriate for the differences in scope of practice, uh, providers, uh, liability. Uh, all of the things that are different about civilians. So, so taking military lessons learned and making it appropriate for civilian use and fire, EMS, police, and, and all of high-threat medicine, including what we call the first care provider um, or the bystander, active bystander, however you want to refer to it. Um, th- that's where we started from was looking at the data, uh, you know, around combat. 
and uh, and trying to figure out what what we could do to to improve survivability. Um, we agree with everything that the Hartford Consensus has said, uh, with the exception of one thing, and I, I think that's maybe what we can talk about a little bit today, is that is the myopic, or it appears to be a myopic focus on hemorrhage control. Um, our process of, of looking at the, the TECC data and our process of developing um, our white papers and our guidelines has been uh, trying to recreate uh, exactly the, the data analysis that the military did to come up with their recommendations of tactical combat casualty care which was done through retrospective autopsy data uh, on uh, combat deaths to say well, what what killed people, what you know what was preventable, what, you know what could be preventable with point of, of wounding care and and good downstream care and things like that, and then and then making recommendations based on that. Well, the truth is that that data doesn't exist uh, in any form, and so we started looking into the data around active shooter and and looking at providing this, looking at the autopsies that are available. And, uh, and and trying to analyze that data, and, and what we find really is that is that the civilians, as you can surmise, are, are much different than combat. This, you know, civilian active shooters are much different from combat. And that our, you know, what we ended up conclusion with was that was that um, uh, we agree. Although we agree that, that the Harper consensus is fantastic, it's just the first step. It needs to be. We need to build on uh, the recommendations of the Harper consensus and not stop just at uh, hemorrhage call. So hemorrhage control and public access, there, uh, there's a lot more that goes into what is survivable in an active shooter event. Um, we're actually presenting this paper at the East Conference, and I, as a as a podium presentation, I look forward to to be able to discuss discuss it in that venue. Um, I have a little bit of time left. I'll turn it over to Dr. Sharani and see if he has anything to add, or Gene, if you have anything to add. I'll read that. Uh, um, that's a great overview at DCC, and, and a, it's a glimpse at your paper. If you don't mind, let me uh, let me just ask uh, Babak directly. I'll, I'll just ask him this question: Whether improved extremity and junctional hemorrhage control will reduce mortality in public shootings in the context of of the upcoming East paper, which we don't want to leak too much about, but it's fun to get a glimpse of. Babak. Uh, thanks, uh, Andrew. I'll give a little teaser. Sure. Um, I, I don't know what's going to happen in the future. Is the short answer to the question based on the data that. Really, I've got to give a lot of credit to Reed. He is the designer of this study. But based on the study that we were able to do on actual victims of active shooter events, the answer to your question is no. We found no persons, no civilians, who sustained a lethal injury in an active shooter mass casualty situation uh, due to extremity wounding um, sufficient to cause exsanguination. So if the past is any predictor of the future, the answer is going to be no. Uh, I don't think a tourniquet will be of much benefit for uh, active shooter events. Perhaps they will be of benefit in explosive-type events. And I want to reiterate that none of us is out to say we should ban tourniquets. That is simply not true, uh, nor, nor should be ban tourniquets. It's just not the case. I think the point to be made is – Tourniquets are probably the most basic level where we need to start, but there is really quite substantial building that needs to be done on top of that. And, uh, you know, we can get into the meat of that discussion as the, uh, as the podcast rolls forth. Dr. Alexander Eastman, might you have a response uh, to those comments on the, uh, the upcoming data for the East meeting next Just week? say for the record that uh, the – the moderator of this debate, Dr. Bernard, was actually scared to let me discuss this paper, so he actually planned me to be doing something else during the meeting at this time. So you guys are going to get it easy when you come to San Antonio. Uh, but but all kidding aside, um, look, I mean, I think that that the what Reed and Bob have done and taking a look at this from from uh, from an autopsy data perspective is an interesting addition to the literature, but it's not the end of the story. And as these guys will tell you, that there there are a number of limitations to using autopsy data to try to answer this question. And I think the other thing that is that is uh, interesting about hemorrhage control programs and public access hemorrhage control programs is you're going to save some people who you know maybe don't fall into the category of the active shooter. But I can tell you here in Dallas, since we instituted our program, our department-wide program, which has just been a little over two years, that there are 17 documented lives saved uh, across our community, including two of our own. 
with confirmed repaired vascular injuries in two of our own personnel. So again, I think that 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 there are one of the things that I would love to hear that uh, everyone's take on, there are huge shortcomings in the way that we collect this data, as evidenced by the fact that Reed has to go back and dig through autopsy data. And one of the things that I think um, uh, TECC and the committee on TECC has done and will continue to do, and I think the Harper Consensus Group is going to try to do some of the same thing, is to drive a more meaningful way to collect this data. Because quite frankly, we really have very little of an idea about about what's really going on across the country in terms of pre-hospital hemorrhage control. You know, there's been a couple studies that have come out recently, uh, one that was a multi-center trial that was led by the Tulane group. There's some others in the works. Uh, the Tulane study was, was, was presented at last year's East meeting. So I, I think, you know, there are, um, there are some data out there, but it's nowhere near where it needs to be. Yeah, I couldn't agree with more with you, Alex, and I think it may be worth having Reed in, in 30 seconds or less describe how you got the data for the paper read and some of the hurdles you had to jump through for data that, that exists. I would say, I would answer back to Alex. Number one, Alex, you know, number one, I'd love to sit over a beer and discuss this paper with you because, you know, I, as, as somebody in the same, you know, circles, I'd love to know your opinion, but, but um, <clears throat> and you don't scare me. So, uh, but, uh, but the, the truth is, is that we use the same process that, or the same data that you guys for tactical combat casualty care, the process by which that data was created, and that's what your recommendations have been based upon. We did the same thing. We just did it for a different set of, of data, you know, for civilians. We did the exact same process that was done that looked at, you know, the 2010 study by Eastridge, I think, that, you know, that looked, we used the exact same process. Um, you know, what's interesting about that is that you, it is almost impossible to get this data. It took us two years, and we only got 139 uh, out of 12 events. And, you know, we sent out probably 30 or more emails and didn't get and, – and got no response. You know, and, and we used FOIA, and we did everything, multiple FOIA. People asked to pay for it. So in some cases, they didn't even do autopsies. So the data, it's hard to get. And, you know, and uh, I think we'd be careful with the – you know, yes, you know, we all agree that image control is important. The point is, is that by saying, you know, the Harvard consensus, by saying that active shooters, that we will save lives in active shooters, yes, we may, but we also need other things because the data report, you know, looks at a, shows a different pattern of injury. And therefore, if we stop at hemorrhage control only and we fail to do the simple other things that we know kill people in active shooter, then, then we're, we're letting down, you know, we're letting down our, you know, our end user. We're letting down the fire and response, the EMS, the, the police response, the, you know, and the citizens. So we we can't stop at hemorrhage control. I agree with you. The next one may have everyone shot in the femoral artery. But the historical data, and this is exactly what the military did, it's the same data process they did to make the recommendations on hemorrhage control for the battlefield. We did the yeah. same thing. You know, we yeah. did the same here's, 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 the, here's the deal, though. I mean, and it's an issue. 12 of 139 events is a very small slice, right? It's actually, 20, well, it's actually 25% of the of the. At, at, but but again, you know, the military is collecting data on every casualty since, so it's a little bit different. You know, it's it's not apples and apples. Um, and again, I think the the point is, and I know we'll agree on this, is that you know, the fact that you have to go and call autopsies from 130 different jurisdictions. We tried to do something very similar with regards to law enforcement officer fatalities. And even the National Law Enforcement Memorial Fund, a humongous a, a bear in the field of officer safety with a lot of juice behind it and, and money and talent, could not help you know get that done because you're dealing with of the hundred and you know, 30 to 150 officers who die around the country every year, you're dealing with 150 separate jurisdictions, and every one of them has a reason why you can't have the data, whether the case, you know, it's an ongoing criminal case, it's a, you know, I mean, there's a million and one reasons why you get that you, that it just can't be done. So I, I think that there's no question that, that where there's some common ground here is the need for uh, better answers on this question. Yeah, I mean, I, I, I agree. I agree. Well, I mean, I I mean, Alex, I agree with you. I agree with you. It's important to understand, but we're not – I mean, this this conversation is not only about the lack of access to data. That's a bigger issue with HIPAA and other things that, that it's going to take, you know, legislation to change. But it is around the fact that you, we can't just myopically focus on hemorrhage control. So that's a great lead into our next debate question. I'll direct this question to Dr. Eric Campion and, and Gene Riley. And here's the question, gentlemen. 
So should we be focusing education on more training for lay providers and law enforcement vis-a-vis Hartford consensus? Or should we be focusing our efforts on more advanced training and technical approaches for already qualified EMS providers? Uh, and we'll, we'll start with Dr. Campion from the Hartford consensus. Okay, well, uh, thanks for the opportunity uh, to speak with you guys today. Um, you know, my opinion really is, I think, I think similar to everyone else's, that we, we agree on much more than we disagree. And I think the answer is, is really all of the above. But if we're focusing specifically on active shooter scenarios, I think the biggest bang for our buck is going to be working on, you know, training layperson in some of the most basic techniques. Because unfortunately, when it comes to active shooter situations, we really don't know when or where they're going to happen, as opposed to, you know, if you take more of a TECC type approach and really focus on heavily training tactical personnel and heavily training those, I think that's very important as well. But when you're looking at active shooters, since you really don't know when or where, the ability to deploy those personnel in a timely fashion to save lives becomes uh, quite difficult. And so I think if you really have a limited pool of money and your focus is on saving people from active shooter scenarios, I personally would focus my uh, educational dollars on training the lay personnel on some of the most basic techniques, similar to a CPR-type campaign, in order to stop some hemorrhage and to really get at some of those preventable deaths. And while I think the study that was done uh, by Dr. Smith is a fantastic study, I really uh, appreciate the fact that we're finally getting some actual data. Um, I think when we look at uh, you know non-survivable injuries, those are still unfortunately, for the most part, going to be non-survivable in the pre-hospital setting. Although I appreciate uh, the emphasis on trying to get to the bottom of it to see if we can maybe save a few more of those folks, but I still think looking at basic uh, hemorrhage control techniques by a layperson is probably the most cost-effective way to prevent death from an active shooter scenario. Dr. Riley. Uh, yeah, this is this is Gene Riley, and I, I too would. Um, Appreciate the opportunity to, to participate here. You know, I, um, my take on this is that um, I think that there is a bit of a danger in overselling this. Um, I think that the amount of, the, you know, the, the the measurable benefit to be had from teaching the civilians how to do this is is um, going to be very modest because I think that instinctively people know how to stop bleeding. I think that. People get cut, they put pressure on it. Um, people do that all the time for their loved ones. Um, you know, I was talking to my wife and preparing for this debate and told her about the tourniquets, and she asked me kind of, you know, instinctively, why wouldn't you just take your belt off or take your, you know, shirt sleeve and wrap it around, you know, the person's extremity? And there's, there's a lot of common sense to that. And I think that when, the, it, to the extent that there are any preventable deaths in the civilian population to be seen from exsanguinating hemorrhage, the issue is not that the public is ill-equipped. It's that there are other things that they're worried about, like their own safety. Um, if you look at the marathon bombing, for example, um, that's sort of a unique situation that maybe is more akin to the combat data that, that we've been talking about. But even there, um, they, those people had their tourniquets applied, and, and, and it's really hard to, to put a tourniquet on the proper way so that it's effective, and it, I don't know that it's reasonable to expect that the public is going to do it. Um, it would take an enormous amount of re resources to educate the public, to get bleeding bags together, to put them where the IEDs are, um, and in the end, if we're going to make some sort of honest appraisal about the, the type of benefit that we see from that, I, I really have a hard time figuring out um, where that benefit is going to come from. Um, I think that... I didn't really want to veer into any kind of uh, political weeds, but I, I do think since the point was made about data, I think that you can hardly fault the Hartford Consensus Group for trying to extrapolate the combat data because there isn't really any other readily available data. And part of the reason may be that there's not really any money to go into it, that kind of research. And I think that really one cost-effective uh, way um, that's a little bit out of scope might be to try to lobby to free up some dollars to get that research done. But within the scope of the debate, I think that, you know, we have a group of people who's trained to do this kind of stuff under duress, which I think is really the big problem is not education, but getting people to kind of look out for the greater good when their own safety is in question. And I, I, think, that, I think that we would be really throwing dollars into uh, a problem where 
they really are not going to do a lot of good if we focus mainly on the civilian population. That's um, a great summary. Andrew, can, I also, can I also follow up on what Eric said? It's, uh, it's Bob Eck. Um, so, so the point to be made is we, I, we actually agree with what Eric said. I think Eric's points are very insightful and well taken regarding the need to utilize uh, persons who are on scene as the first care provider because you never know where this event is going to occur and who knows when EMS will be able to get to the patient. <clears throat> so, yes, once again, I think we are agreeing more than we're disagreeing, and Reed and I were just fortunate enough to have a paper published for, uh, I'm sorry, accepted for publication in the Journal of Trauma, hopefully that will come on the next month or two, uh, regarding the role of the first care provider. And I think the point to be made is the tenants of TECC should be utilized to train our civilian colleagues, you know, the, the, the so-called bystander. Uh, we changed the name bystander to first care provider to point out the individual who actually has been trained and is no longer just an innocent bystander, but rather is the first point of contact in the chain of survival. Um, and then we can talk a little bit more, and we can talk better than I, um, about the role of having EMS uh, or specially trained police penetrate the scene to get to the patients faster than they usually would. You know, I'll give you a very brief little anecdote. Is It's been many, many, many years since I worked the field, but I started off as an EMT, and I will never forget a call that I got for a gunshot wounding, and we staged literally two blocks away for half an hour while the sheriff in Sacramento County cleared the scene. And the entire time I was thinking to myself, just a 19-year-old kid, I wonder how badly this guy's bleeding. Um, I think we need to get to a point where we utilize the first care provider on scene to render therapies inclusive of tourniquets, but perhaps beyond tourniquets, to things like needle decompression of the chest for pneumothoraces, things that can be treated, as well as empower EMS and or specially trained police to render care far more expeditiously. Okay, hold on. Now I have to jump in because I – I listened to Gene and Bobak. I got to clear up a couple misconceptions. First and foremost, let me go backwards. I, I don't know uh, that you will if if it's too complicated to train whatever you call them immediate responders, bystanders, first care providers to put in tourniquets. I can't ever see us getting to the point, no matter how much we train and try, to teach them how to do needle decompression effectively. That skill eludes seasoned paramedics still around the country every day. Uh, and, and, and we all that work at level one centers that see a lot of these come in know that that, that skill is 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 um, one that's that sometimes uh, difficult to master. Let me, let, Gene. A couple of things. First of all, if you listen to Dave King or 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 George talk about their experiences during the Boston Marathon bombing, of the improvised tourniquets that were applied that day, zero of them were effective. Uh, in providing hemorrhage control. Not a single one was deemed to be effective, and they've published that um, work relatively recently. So the, while, you're, while your wife is well-intentioned, the, the idea that you can just pull your belt off and fashion an effective tourniquet is unfortunately not accurate, and that's been proven um, across a number of, of theaters, the military, civilian, you name it, that, that's been, that there's a reason why you need to have a commercially available tourniquet to use. So, and the other thing that I think is interesting is that people have actually, outside of the trauma arena, have actually looked at who stays and who goes during one of these events. And you're right that the vast majority of people, uh, when faced with uh, an, an active shooter or intentional mass casualty event, are going to evacuate themselves for their own safety. But the alert center in San Marcos, which many of us work very closely with, um, which is the active shooter training provider and the model that's used all over the country to teach active shooter response to law enforcement agencies, uh, actually based down here in San Marcos, Texas, kind of um, south of us, um, they've done the best sort of uh, criminology-based research on the, what happens to people in the active shooter, and, and they know that there's 5 to 8% of people when faced with this instance like this, don't leave at the risk of their own safety and stay to help their fellow man and woman who's injured, down, whatever. So there are, uh, there is a talent pool, so to speak, out there uh, of people that we can use during these events, and I think that's what we're all discussing in terms of uh, how to best harness that that pool of immediate responders, first care providers, whatever you want to call them.
I don't necessarily disagree with any of the things that you said other than that's not evidence that a store-bought tourniquet is going to work just because the the ad hoc tourniquets didn't. Um, there were, you know, it's, it's really hard to say whether something was working or not when there were so few deaths, frankly. Um, and in fact, with the store-bought tourniquets, people have come in off the street, you know, with them on, put on by the ambulance or by whomever. They're very hard to figure out. The usability of those tourniquets, I would imagine, for a layperson, is going to be extremely difficult. They need to be, you know, in order for it to be effective, you would think it probably has to be put on to the point of pain. I think that people are not going to be prepared to do that. Um, I think that if you look at, you know, the a similar experience with, with AEDs that have been placed, um, you know, they're sort of the gold standard, I would think, because if with all of the cardiac um, deaths that, are, that occur, there really is no substitute for defibrillation for somebody who's in a defibrillator arrest. And so, really, you would think that by placing these things around, you're going to have this great benefit. And Hartford Consensus even mentions putting kind of uh, hemorrhage control bags where these AEDs are placed. But if you look at the AEDs even, the experience has not been that overwhelming. Oh, I completely disagree with that. The the Chicago International Airport AED study really put uh, – the, the idea of public access to fibrillation on the map, and they had a drastic improvement in survival. And don't think There's that no question that they work. That, the don't don't think that I'm some dork that sits around reading AED literature. I just got finished studying for the EMS board exam, so uh, I've, I've got a better command on this stuff than I did three months ago, but I'll tell you that there's no question that, that they improve survival. And I think that, that, that your other statement about not being able – these uh, a, a commercially available tourniquet, the two that are you know approved or by the Committee on Tactical Combat Casualty, the statement that you can't – that they're hard to train and hard to use, I have just not found that to be the case, nor does the literature find that to be the case. I mean, if you look at – basically, the military's done all of their work – and all of the improvements they've seen in battlefield survival based on the tourniquet and the hemorrhage control program, that's all taught to non-traditional providers, privates coming out of boot camp, people deploying, and they don't find a lot of training failures with those. If you look at Rebecca Schroll's data in the United States, there were some tourniquets that were placed for non-arterial hemorrhage in that study, but but again, short of that, they're not finding them put in wrong places around people's necks, that sort of stuff. It's a relatively... Uh, easy skill. I mean, I've been in uh, in the, just in the last year alone. I've been on three continents training non-traditional providers in a language you know that isn't their first language, and nobody has trouble picking these skills up relatively quickly. In fact, I would offer, and I think Dave King has some work on this uh, coming out in the near future. I would offer that the present programs that we have in place are probably too long and too redundant. You can get more efficient and better. Uh, at training non-traditional providers in these techniques, it just doesn't take a long time to master this skill. So, hey, so Andrew, I can agree I? With that, can Alex, and if I can, go ahead, go ahead. As Reed, um, so I mean, Alex, I think you're right. You're right. You're absolutely right. I mean, there's a couple of things that were that you said that was interesting, which is if none of the if none of the tourniquets, the improvised tourniquets in Boston worked, but nobody died, did they actually need tourniquets? Which I, I think that they probably slowed bleeding down and, and improved, helped survival. But I mean, none of you, I mean, they say they, every one of them failed. None of them had hemorrhage control, and yet nobody died. Um, so that's an interesting thing. And then the other thing is that when you look at, um, you know, the let me kind of clarify what Bobak was talking about. You know, we weren't we're not saying that you know first care providers should be decompressing chest at this point. But maybe in the future we have to be open to looking at the data and then kind of going down the road saying what needs to be done. What you know what. How do we address it? I, I think the, the argument isn't around hemorrhage control. I, I mean, it, it's just around only hemorrhage control. I mean, the the, the point is is that the first care provider, the, you know, to improve survivability in an active shooter, you you know this as well, right? Police stop the killing, fire and EMS, medicine stops the dying, and they have to almost occur simultaneously. And the first care provider, absolutely, as part of TECC, can scope, you know, level appropriate application of TECC skills, which includes hemorrhage control, but it also includes airway management, it includes um, you know, casualty movement. It includes hypothermia prevention. There's things that we need to teach first care providers and citizens, such as how to call 911. You know, we need to teach them stuff, stuff like run, hide, fight. We need to teach. There's things that they need to know. Um, you know, in, in effective communication. How to how to function. We need to teach EMS how to function with first care providers on the scene because right now we just push them out of the way. 
So, so it, yes, hemorrhage control, it, yes, and, and maybe, maybe there will be someone who gets, you know, survives from hemorrhage, from a, from a tourniquet. It's just that you know, the, the pattern in an active shooter, especially active shooter, they're, they're not wearing armor. They're not wearing ballistic gear. No one's shooting back at the shooter as a whole until police get there. So they have, they have complete tactical dominance of the room that they're in, and they, it's all up close torso and head shots. And I know you pass. I know you pass the the um, you know the the you pass your shooting your shooting you know to be a police officer. But you, you know anybody can hit center mass from three feet away, and so I mean so just the pattern is different, and that's what we're trying to focus on. And what we found, just so you know, we didn't look at what killed people. We did. We saw what killed people. We tried to find the fatal wound, but we looked as well on were any of those fatal wounds shouldn't have been fatal. So if it had been a shot to a femoral artery, that shouldn't be fatal. A shot to the chest where there's no major vascular injury shouldn't be fatal. It shouldn't be fatal. Single shot to the chest. So that's what we were looking at is were there injuries that we found were to be, you know, in the autopsies that said, gosh, man, they shouldn't have died from this wound. That's what we were looking at. And, and really when you start to pick apart the tactics and, and what's involved in an active shooter, it is way different from combat and you don't, you just don't see the, the, you know, external hemorrhage. It's all internal hemorrhage. I agree with you, internal hemorrhage control. External hemorrhage control and tourniquets, they're a great skill, but we can't stop there. We've got to do more than that. So both groups and have done I, a, if a I great add job. About, so both, both groups have done a great job. Let me just – I want to get one more question now before we open it for discussion. I want to give the audience a chance to ask questions. Now, both groups have done a great job of, of convincing me, I think convincing the audience, that – that there's potential in both educational uh, initiatives. So question for, for both groups. Uh, open, I'll open this uh, first to, to Alex and Eric, uh, and then uh, to read Gene Labat. And that's a question of where's the holdup? Uh, what, what is the barrier? What are the barriers to widespread implementation of, of your program or either program? Uh, open it up to, uh, to uh, Alex and Eric first. Eric, you want to start, and then I'll... Well, I think uh, you know the, the barriers are, are, are numerous, but I think they're there's something that we can overcome. I mean, of course, you know, a financial commitment to this type of training is something that is only kind of over the last maybe couple of years really been realized is becoming uh, important. And of course, the recent events that we've already discussed have, have kind of emphasized the need for this. And then I think also um, just the public awareness has changed so much. You know, if you think back to uh, to 9/11 and uh, you know, the fact that it, before 9-11, you pretty much could assume that if a terrorist took over a plane, they're going to try and hijack it, land it somewhere, and people would expect to survive. And now there's nobody that would take over a plane and expect the passengers just to sit there and not do anything. And I think that mindset is also, you know, about to change as far as all these active sewer situations. Not only are people no longer going to sit there and allow themselves to be shot, but they're also not just going to sit there after the fact and allow people to bleed to death because I think our overall cultural mindset has changed as to how do we uh, attack these things. Alex, you go ahead. Yeah, I, I would just add to that. I think, you know, the idea that there's 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 a couple of problems. First and foremost, I think there's a ton of cooks in the kitchen. Uh, and not that that's necessarily a bad thing, but there were – until – there was a little bit more structure put to this by both of the groups on this phone call. There were so many people and so many fits and starts that tried to address this and take the lead on it. There really was no coordinated effort. I think that's changed with both the Hartford Consensus and the Committee on Tactical Emergency Casualty Care. It's really made a huge – both of those groups have made a huge difference. The White House held a series of three sort of roundtable discussions on this with, with stakeholders from across – all the affected communities, uh, and I got the pleasure to go to, to those. And and, and they're, they're, when you listen to to what's out there in terms of people pushing this or that or what the barriers are, they're everything that have been described. It's money, it's time, it's training, it's how you get people to engage. Uh, and I think one of the things that we all have to do is really come together to push a a common, simple message and just something as simple as coming up with the equivalent to stop drop and roll which is what the the White House and the National Security Council really at the beginning of this was trying to say how do we describe this to people who need something as simple as stop drop and roll that everybody can get behind and so the idea of the stop the bleed initiative uh, was started, and I think that's a really good one because it encompasses the things that I've talked about it encompasses some of the things that Reed's talked about but and he's right. There will be more work to do when that is 
as common practice as stop, drop, and roll or CPR. There will be more things to do. I think that is just uh, the beginning of some, if there is such a thing in this debate, low-hanging fruit that we can bite off. Gene, read the box. Yeah, Gene, if you don't, or Bob, let me take it and I'll pass it off to you guys. But, you know, again, you know, we agree, but, I mean, to me, the problem with stop, drop, and roll is it's only good if you're on fire. You know, if you're not on fire, it doesn't do you any good. And so I think that we need to, um, you know, the, the we, you know, again, when we look at expanding, and I think building on the White House Stop the Bleed, building on Hartford Consensus and building forward, what we've done, you know, and the barrier right now, one of the big barriers is the regulatory barriers, the, the information, getting the data-driven information. You know, we believe in evidence-based medicine. But right now we've got a lot of progress, and I would say the barriers aren't nearly as bad as they were a couple of years ago. The feds have gotten behind TECC. Um, they, you know, through the Joint Counterterrorism Awareness Workshop Series and the Integrated Emergency uh, Management Course Series uh, with FEMA and the National Counterterrorism Center, we're training high threat events in response to high threat events. We've trained, uh, I think we've done 30 or 40 major cities over the last uh, couple of years. Um, you know, we've, we did an impromptu, you know, in, inside the Committee for Tactical Emergency Care, we did a kind of straw poll and found that, you know, the members of, TE, of the committee have trained almost 70,000 first responders first care providers, um, you know, doctors, nurses, in the, the, you know, in the, sco- the, the uh, scope appropriate, the level appropriate, um, TECC for their, sco- you know, for their level of training. With 70,000 people at really no cost. Um, you know, we have uh, groups like firstcareprovider.org, um, the, the uh, uh, Koshka Foundation for Safe Schools that are embracing TECC for students and, and first care citizens and saying, here's the, you know, here's the totality of what you need to learn. Yes, you need to know tourniquets and bleeding control, but you also need to know how to call 911 and how to move, so, you know, how to make yourself safe and how to move a patient and how to prevent hypothermia, things like that. Um, you know, in the committee itself, we are putting out free, you know, we're developing free training. We're developing free uh, resources for people who want that grassroots effort of making it specific to their own agency, and, and we help everybody at no cost to anybody. Um, you know, so I think that the barriers, you know, there, there are barriers. I think most of the barriers around around regulatory issues and trying to get the data to say what we're doing is right. And even Alex, you know, even in the you were great to say 17, you know, documented safe. We've got you know 250, 300 police putting on tourniquets, but we can't get the information to see if they actually needed a tourniquet. So maybe. You know, was there an injury? You got that because you're in Dallas, but the rest of the country, we we have access to HIPAA information and, and, and information that allows us to know what we're doing is right. And I, I think, that, to me, that's the biggest barrier is this ability to get the data. Um, one more thing. If I can add on to that, Reed. Yeah, go ahead. Yeah, go ahead. If I can add on to that, Reed, let's just kind of put these in perspective a little bit. I'm kind of a – I'm a little bit of a buff of history, and, and the past does, in fact, predict the future. So I was lucky enough to do my fellowship at the University of Pittsburgh, and many of the persons who trained me were Peter Saffer's trainees in turn. And they would tell us stories about when Saffer came up with the concept of CPR. And so this kind of gets back to what Alex said about how, how it's not feasible to train people to do, a, as an example, needle decompression, not that that's going to end up being our poster child procedure. But let me tell you, back in the 50s, when CPR first came out, and 70s, 40 years ago, when it really rolled out in what we consider CPR today, the concept of compressing the heart between the sternum and the vertebral body was crazy. The thought of putting your mouth on somebody else's mouth and blowing air into their lungs was ridiculous. And yet what was crazy and ridiculous 40 years ago, in fact, is what we teach our elementary school um, kids today. So I think, we're, once again, we're all saying the same thing. What we need to do is have a data-driven approach to first response therapies following active shooter by civilians as well as by trained uh, EMS and police um, responders. But we can't close our – we can't start by saying, you know what, this procedure is too complicated. We're just not going to talk about it. Well, the data seems to suggest that's actually the procedure you need. I think we should keep our eyes open. We should do a very data-driven methodology and then understand that CPR took 45 years to be where it is today. And even now it's not done perhaps as appropriately as it should be, but better some CPR than no CPR. Gentlemen, I'd like to open it up for questions. We have about 10 minutes left, and I know there are a bunch of questions in the queue. If I may, I know we have uh, East President Dr. Stan Couric on the call. I'd like to open it up uh, for Stan. Uh, if you have a comment or, or a question for the group to lead off the question and answer session. Well, thank you, sir. I've actually been I'm on call, so I've been bouncing in and out. Um, 
I don't have any questions. I just want to uh, commend both groups. This has been a great discussion so far. So I really enjoyed it. And um, if something pops in my brain, I'll, uh, I'll ask something in a few minutes. We didn't think it was going to turn into quite so much a debate, but it turned out into a, turned into a pretty lively one. Matt, you have a question? Uh, yeah, this has been fantastic, guys. Question for Reed and, Reed and Babak. So uh, do we need to even get away from this of preparing for this certain type of event and this certain type of event? Because we're going to be chasing 10 different events. You know, it might be an active shooter today. It might be a pile up on the highway tomorrow. It might be an IED or a Boston Marathon bombing. Uh, so, so do we need to get away from this preparing for specific scenarios and having a more all-encompassing preparedness? And then the second question is, this is a lot of money we're talking about to put these hemorrhage control stations everywhere. And, and do you think that we should be not doing that and putting that money to better use somewhere else? Thanks. Um, so this is Reed. What I can say is you're absolutely 100% correct that one of the, the historical perspective of, of the American response has always been reactive, not proactive, which is why you know, the power in TECC is that it is, you know, it has the word tactical in it, which, which if it, the word tactical and everyone assumes that means you're wearing black 511s and running around in combat boots. Tactical, it means operations, right? It means, you know, we use tactics on the fire ground to stretch hose lines. We use tactics, honestly, you use tactics when you run a code in the ER. You mean, it's just operational considerations. And what, when we looked at TECC, we looked at for all high-threat events, which includes technical rescue. It includes hazardous materials response. It includes, uh, you know, collapsed structure and confined space. It includes fire, you know, fire being used as a weapon and just you know, house fire. It includes mass casualty, buses rolling over, and plane crashes. Anywhere there's a continued threat in any form to the patient and the provider, how do you scope down the, the, the priorities, the immediate priorities to, to define only to do only what is life-saving. The, the majority of what we do in pre-hospital medicine is nice to do, right? You know, so what we need to do in, in a high-threat environment where there's a threat to you and the patient, an ongoing threat, you need to say, okay, I, these are the three things I need to do, and then I'm going to move to a safer area. And we need to define that and give that framework to our providers. And that's what we've done with TECC. It is not applicable only for active shooter. It's across the board in every high-threat event, whether they be terrorism-related, you know, or violent-related, or it's you know, weather-related or whatever. Um, you know, that's, so, yes, you're, you're absolutely right. And, and TECC does have applications across all of those things. If you understand the high-threat principles and how to prioritize, you can make a, a, a real-time decision on what the threat is to you and the patient and adjust accordingly based on that threat. Um, I'll let Alex answer the, the, the hemorrhage control access uh, question because it is a funding – it is a bit of an unfunded mandate. No, I mean, I think there's no question that, that, that that's the challenge that many jurisdictions are facing. And many organizations are facing. I'll tell you, I think it's a, it's, um the, the one area where we differ is I, as I think that, that, that training people with no medical tra training, okay, my, my mom, who I know isn't listening, is a 74 year old attorney. Training my mom to understand the tenets of, of TECC is, is a, is a challenge. Only because of the breadth and depth of those, of what you got, what, what TECC has tried to bite off. I think you got to start slowly and, and, and building upon skill upon skill. And so I don't think that it's not that far of a, of a stretch for her to, to try to learn some hemorrhage control techniques. Um, but I think as you, you talk about assessing threats and doing those sorts of things, it gets to be, to be somewhat challenging. I think it's even challenging for, for, uh, to, and, and this is where for me, uh, this is what what where I have trouble rectifying this with myself is that that since we we may or may not have a life saving intervention that's effective, training people to then function in that environment while well, we don't have an 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 intervention to deliver, if you believe the tech and information management section side of this debate doesn't make any sense to me. Why even put people in that in harm's way if you don't have an intervention for them to deploy? And so I think that, that, that there's some a little bit of, of, uh, of uh, a bit of an unclear um, focus on w what then is the goal of training all of these personnel in being in the hot zone, warm zone, whatever. 
Um, and, and so that's where, for me, as a guy who's on, you know, one of the biggest SWAT and busiest SWAT teams in the country, that's where where it tends to fall apart a little bit for me because it it's a very long run for a short slide. I mean, you can to train, you know, the 950. Dallas Fire Rescue frontline paramedics to become experts at, at, at making entries into buildings is a daunting task. Not an impossible one, but a daunting task. And I, I'm just not sure I see uh, the bang for the buck at this point. It's interesting. I thought we were going to have a much more uh, of the debate was going to be would shift into that discussion, and I'm surprised we haven't gotten there yet. Yeah. Well, hey, Alex, let me just Doctor. let me just make let me make Alex let me make a point real quick. I think you're misunderstanding TECC. Because you're saying that your mom shouldn't, and you know, with your, all respect to your mom, I'm sure she's a brilliant attorney, um, but but you know that she doesn't need that the TECC is too much for her. You understand that we scope the TECC guidelines are scoped to the provider. So is it too much for your mom to understand how to do hemorrhage control, how to push somebody on their side and keep them warm? Because that's really all TECC says that we do for the first care provider. We then em- go on to emphasize, you know, how to strategies for her to mitigate her physical risk. And the risk you know, and psychological risk and strategies to you know communicate with first responders, the professional first responders that are coming in, and how to call 911 and how to provide psychological comfort for the wounded. That's what TECC says for the first care provider. It's not much different than hemorrhage control, but it is a little bit more on positioning, hypothermia management, keeping yourself safe. You know, so that's not. I mean, we're not teaching you know people to to do damage control resuscitation at your mom's level. So I mean that that's a really important that's a misunderstanding of what the, the scope of TECC. Um, Let's take the next you know, question here. Uh, yeah. uh, I'm going to take the next question because we have several in the queue and I know these folks uh, have burning questions. Uh, Dr. Richard Kameen, uh from UConn, do you have a comment or question? And let me ask you to direct it to one side of the panel or the other, and then I'll ask the respondent to keep your response brief. Sure. No, absolutely. It's Rich Kamen. Uh I know a number of the uh, panelists as well. I'm a, I'm a doctor here at UConn. I'm also a guidelines committee member for TECC. Alex and I have worked together on a number of uh, issues as well. And I, I would just say that, um, I, you know, to me, um, my, my comment is I, I'm not quite sure how this can possibly be construed or billed as a one versus the other when I think the tenants that have been fleshed out within the Hartford Consensus are essentially held within the structure of TECC. And that TECC, to Alex's comment about training his mom and to what Rita's already said, really embodies about not just the specific interventions, but a system, a structure, just like TCCC was a structure for the military and very successful, TECC will hopefully be that structure across the civilian environment that helps people understand the right intervention at the right time in relation to the risk they are being faced with. Just like someone else said, whether it's an active shooter or something's on fire or there's a busload of hemophiliacs that's about to go over the ravine. Um, you know, I, I, I guess I think that those are my main points. I, I think it's unfortunate that with so much agreement, this is billed as a one versus the other. Um, to Alex's point there, you know, my hope is that um, I, I wonder how is it that we can take the now growing number of uh, kitchens in the cook, uh, rather cooks in the kitchen, and maybe better unify and better organize so that we don't have a redundancy or parallel process uh, between having to have conversations like this where we are in agreement mostly between the Hartford Consensus and TECC. Um, and I, I guess my only other question is, and it's already been addressed, to the point with CPR, the reason CPR has been successful and refined is because we've been studying it very well. So I'm hopeful to Alex's point. I wonder if there's any insight to Alex about how that database, how we can better effectively gather, garner, and make that available. Brief reply from the Hartford side and then brief yeah. reply from the TFT yeah. side. Good, good to hear your voice, Rich. I, I would say you're, you're on point, and I would say that, that – that there's no question. Let me take the data question first. We're presently discussing at the highest levels of of the federal government how to craft a database that potentially could help us answer some of these questions and get some funding behind making that happen. I think that that it's the only way uh, that that we're going to have real answers to this question. The only way. Uh, and so I would say more to follow on that uh, in in coming months. As far as the 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 
use of TECC as a framework for people to get behind it, totally get it, understand, and support it. And, Reed, I think you guys know, you know, I've been a – uh, an advisor from the beginning, and I'm proud to say that I'm part of it, and, and I, I think it, there's a lot of potential. So, Rich, I think that that uh, we, these are called these town hall debates, but I think, like I said at the beginning, uh, you see that there is much more agreement than there is dissent. From the TEC side, briefly, any comment? I don't have any. Okay, I'm going to open the next question uh, from Dr. Patricia Byers. Can I have a a great interest in this and um what i was wondering because i was trying to you know the idea fascinated me because of our motorcycle fatality right here in florida but i ha i'm a uh, member of the motorcycle safety coalition and i've ha i have um very surprising resistance uh to your everyday run-of-the-mill police officer and wanting to actually participate in this sort of activity when i asked them why do they have these little tourniquets packets with them. Their answer is that they, those are for other officers that go down. I thought it was for the, they all take a first responder course. Um, do anybody else have an idea, like, that you find resistance for police since they're on CAD for EMS to help with hemorrhage control or, or how you could ideas to go around that or have other experience with their, like, pushback on this? But, so, so let me, I'm sorry I didn't catch your first name, but this is Alex Eastman. Uh, I, I think... Hey, Patty. So I'll just give you the Major City Chiefs experience. Uh, the Major City Chiefs Association is the professional association of the 80, the chiefs of police of the 80 largest cities in the U.S., basically. And they unanimously adopted uh, the idea of Hartford Consensus and that law enforcement, that hemorrhage control needed to be a core law enforcement skill. So of those 80 agencies, we're just in the process of compiling a resurvey, but we're up to approximately, uh, I would say, 60 of those agencies have in place or are placing into place a law enforcement-based hemorrhage control program. None of those agencies have seen officer resistance to using these uh techniques and hemorrhage control techniques on either a fellow officer or a civilian. They're a little less comfortable using them on civilians, but they still do it. Uh, and so when you talk about numbers, uh, if you look at, at, at the number of police officers that have been trained so far among those 60 or so agencies, it's about 110,000 police officers that have been trained in, when equipped in hemorrhage control techniques, that's about a tenth of law enforcement, just a little bit more than a tenth of law enforcement officers across the country. And I promise you there's many, many more smaller agencies that are not represented in that survey sample that have already done this. Right. Uh, and so when, so when you, so when you look at population, that's somewhere in the neighborhood of, of 85 million, 100 million Americans that are covered by a law enforcement hemorrhage control program. And if you look at, there are many, many cities. Probably the best data that's out there comes from Tucson, a relatively mid-sized major city. They've saved a ton of people, a ton. And, 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 and so that you really do see, uh, and I don't have the number, their number right in front of me, but that, that stuff, they presented their results at some police chief meetings over the last couple of years, and it's just fascinating. So I haven't seen, there's no question that you sell it to the rank and file officers as a way to save themselves and to save their partners, but it's very easily turned outward to the public. Can I, I can add, can I add a comment? This is Reed. Yes, sir. Um, so, so, uh, it's a great question. And, and I'll tell you, you know, we, in 2000, about five years ago, in 2011, we started a program around hemorrhage control, actually TECC, we call it Officer Down TECC or Patrol Officer TECC for, and we've trained over 5,000 police officers in the National Capital Region. So it's been almost six years now. Um, and, you know, what we found, we did find some resistance. And really, the resistance was not around not wanting to help, because they do want to help. And they know that they stand around waiting for the ambulance to get there and, and try to, you know, make small talk with the injured person. So they do want to get involved. But the resistance we found was much more around exposure, so how to keep themselves safe from bloodborne exposure and, and, and getting some kind of uh, um, uh, getting some kind of support from us as the medical professionals saying, no, if you get exposed, we're going to take care of you. And then number two was around liability. It was they they were worried about if they did something yeah. wrong, if they hurt somebody. And so we, had, we we gave them top cover and we said, look, if you you know take the training and if you do it right, if you do it wrong, you know we're you know mostly we said most of the stuff is safe. Look at putting a tourniquet on somebody is safe, even if you unless you put it around their neck, as you know, you know I mean so right. you're not going to really. And then you know the EMS is there quickly enough to be able to you know to be able to take care of that as a whole. You know ten to fifteen minutes in, in most systems would be the longest it would take. 
So we address those two things. You have top cover from a liability perspective. You're not going to get sued, you know, or at least the best we can tell. I mean, every, anybody can get sued for anything. But, you know, it's, it's your good intentions are being supported, and we're going to take care of you if you get exposed. And those, that's the way what we is, address it, meaning we that they won't that, – that we're going to – if they put a tourniquet on someone and there's a lawsuit that, that it, it, they're doing it under our protocol – you know, in our medical direction. So therefore, they they're doing this, you know, as long as they follow the the you know the the guidelines that we set, then then they they won't they don't incur medical liability for that to the best of our ability. That they come after us, right? I'm the one who told them to put a tourniquet on. They're just doing what I told them. Same thing as an EMS. Same thing as EMS liability to a certain extent. We also looked into the um, the you know the ability for you know citizens or untrained people. The you know, Good Samaritan laws, whether they cover police officers, it's a little harder for police officers because they have a duty to act to a certain extent. So, but but those are the issues. You got to solve those issues, and then you'll get buy-in. I don't this understand. You are a medical director for the police. Uh, yeah. So well, we did it as a regional program, and it's a consortium of medical directors. But yes, yeah, I, I have I've uh, for the county, the Arlington County Fire Department, and I I cover the Arlington County SWAT team, and was the was the kind of director on this program for the entire region. Here's the next question, gentlemen. This is a good question. This comes from Pradesh George, who's a trauma surgeon and prior combat medic. That's a good question. The U.S. is relatively new to these terrorist events. What about the countries that have been doing this for a while? What do the Israelis do? What happens in Palestine? What, what methodologies do they have? How, how are their approaches different or similar to ours? I, I, is there, I, I can take this question to read. I mean, we've worked, we've worked extensively. In, uh, Isaac Ashkenazi is the former... Um, uh, a Surgeon General for Israel is a member of our committee. I've worked very closely with him. Um, you know, it's hard. It's a little bit of apples and oranges when you compare Israel to America. Because, but they essentially what they do is they completely empower their citizens to do everything, including establishing incident command in the first couple minutes of any incident. They are trained to do hemorrhage control. They're trained to open airways, and they're they're trained to put you in the back of the car, your car, their car, and drive you to the hospital. The state of Israel, if you put somebody in the back of your car and drive them to the hospital and you have blood all over your car, they clean your car for you. And if your car is destroyed, they buy you a new one, which is a little different than it is here. Um, you know, the, the key there is that they really emphasize the, the chain of survival, starting with the citizen, and they empower their citizen to do, a, you know, more things than just hemorrhage control. I mean, it, it is on, it's, it, you know, they do incident command and they do operational things. Um, they're the best at it, you know, and their whole system is different than ours. The way they distribute patients, the way they respond, who they send to the scene, you know, they have a timeline that they get within 40 minutes or 30 minutes, they have every patient off the scene. Within 60 minutes, there are no more operations. You know, I mean, it, they, they, it's a, a little bit different. We can learn from them. That's by all means. I couldn't agree more with Reed. It's born out of necessity, right? So if you look at the marathon bombing, it was literally like 48 hours. The street was closed. No one could get into the scene. You know, there the investigations ongoing. If you look at a, a cafe bombing in Tel Aviv from a, a, any one of the several that have happened over the last decade, those things are cleaned up same day, couple hours, streets back to normal, people are on the street. It's just a total paradigm shift from the very first person who's involved in the incident to the very last person who completes the investigation and beyond. And so I would I would totally echo uh the the question's a great one and I would totally echo what Reed said. We can learn a ton from our partners who have who have frankly experienced this a lot more than we have uh over the last, you know, twenty years. I'm going to give the last uh, question here to to Dr. Neal. We're going to unmute the lines uh, so Dr. Neal can uh, ask a question, and then I'll make a few closing comments, and we'll adjourn. Great. Hey, thanks very much for the, the honor of the question, I guess, uh, for what has been a really terrific scenario. I'm here with Raquel Forsyth and Josh Brown in Pittsburgh, and we've got a group here that's really actively interested in this problem, and, and I have to thank you on behalf of the folks in the room. We've been scribbling down notes and uh, have learned a tremendous amount in a short period of time, so thanks to EAST and the participants for doing this. But that leads to my question, and that is, is there a good central repository of resources for this problem? We've been writing down websites and information about TECC and Hartford Consensus. Uh, is, is there a central area to go to to talk about resources for taking out to um, field providers uh, for the potential for funding um, to do the kinds of things that were addressed here? Does anybody have any insight as to where we can go? Um, I'd be happy to – I can start by saying this, read that if you go to ctech.org, c-tech.org, 
there's some resources there. If you email me through there, if you, you know, if you email the, the committee, it comes to me. I'll, sh- you know, as we do with everything, I'll share you personally everything that we've done in the national capital region or that I personally have around training fire and EMS, training first care providers, first receivers, and, um, and police officers around, you know, scope appropriate TECC. Um, we are, and the committee is working on developing resources, but it takes a, you know, we're a committee. It has to be approved to be released from the committee, so it takes time. Um, I'll give you my personal stuff. I'd be happy to. There are some, there's some, there's some articles in there. You know, whatever you need, you just let me know. Um, from a grant perspective, GW, George Washington University was afforded a 1.3, awarded a 1.3 million dollar grant to teach TECC and Rescue Task Force, which is escorted warm zone care to fire, rescue, and police and uh, first receivers and um, and first care providers uh, uh, over the next kind of eight, uh, two years. Um, Josh Shapiro at, at, at GW University is the, is the head of that grant. If you email me again through TECC.org, I'll be happy to forward you your email to him so that he, so that he can address how to get uh, that training. It's a week-long training paid for by the government. Um, so those are two good resources that I'm familiar with. Yeah, so, Mac, good to hear you on the call. A couple of things, if you, uh, to get, obviously, you're welcome to hit me up and I'll get you everything we have as well. Um, second is, you know, there are some programs out there designed to do this, to teach to, uh, uh, the first, first immediate responders. If you look at the BCON program from PHTLS or their law enforcement first response program, there's some stuff that's open access that you can just snatch and pull down, and I can point you in the right direction. The other website that's great in terms of uh, stuff that's out there uh, the, the, to give you kind of some fundamentals is the Tactical Combat Casualty Care Program itself is actually open source information on the Internet. So you go to the Tactical Combat Casualty Care website, and there's a ton of stuff there from slides to presentations to data and stuff like that. Um, the last thing I would tell you is what what we probably need, uh, and and what Reed alluded to is we need a single program that encompasses all of these things. So you could pick and choose. Hey, this is what I need here. This is what I need there. And I think that that ultimately many of us on the call um, through Stop the Bleed, through the Harvard Consensus, through TCC, we're going to be working together because it's funny that we all sit on quote-unquote opposite side of the debate, but when we have meetings, we're all at the same tables. So we'll, we'll be working together to make it a lot easier for guys like you who are trying to take this out to your community to have a toolbox that you can use. Well, with that, uh, Gene, Babak, Reed, Eric, Alex, thank you all for participating as panelists in the debate. I want to thank the, the audience. It's been a great discussion today. Thank my co-moderator, Matt Martin. This is his brainchild, and uh, I want to, again, uh, tell everyone uh, that this will be posted in one to two weeks on the East Traumacast site, and Matt Martin loves intellectual debate, so he is looking for future topics. If you have a hot one to debate, send it to Matt, and maybe it will be a future Traumacast. Thanks, everyone. We're going to stop the recording. Uh, The line will be open if you want some informal conversation here for another few minutes before we shut down. Thanks, everyone. And that wraps up another edition of TraumaCast, brought to you by the online education section of the Eastern Association for the Surgery of Trauma. You can check out all of the great educational and career development resources available on the East website at www.east.org. And make sure you subscribe to the TraumaCast series so you don't miss any of our exciting upcoming programs and interviews. So if you're searching for cutting-edge science and research, professional education, networking and building relationships, and career development, remember that all you need to do is look to the East.